right, so today we're starting a new book, starting a First Corinthians, and I'll, I'll confess right in the beginning, this was not my choice. So this was this was David Adams and a few other people prevailed on me to teach First Corinthians, and the reason it wasn't is because I, I taught this book seven years ago. Now, how many people were here seven years ago when I taught that class, okay? Almost nobody <laughs> in the room here. So that's why they asked to teach it again. First Corinthians is an extremely practical book, a uh, letter from Paul. And the reason why people wanted to do this is because, <clears throat> believe it or not, it wasn't that long ago where the entire group was fitting in Susan's living room. And we've long since uh, blown through that. Uh, so there, there are enough people now when we're looking at, we're, we're thinking in the future, while we're in a rented facility today, we're thinking in the future of moving in the direction of house churches. And so there's a concern on the part of the people, how are we going to stay unified? Are we all going to be believing the same thing? Are we all going to be teaching the same thing? Do we, should we be going through some basic uh, Christian doctrine or some topical studies to make sure we're all on the same page? And I thought, well, maybe, you know, 1 Corinthians covers a lot of the controversial subjects. So if we just go through 1 Corinthians, we can do expository preaching. So that was an option. So even though we did it before, we thought it's an opportunity to do it again. And then David further complicated it by sending me, as I was working on the lesson, David sent me the notes from when I taught seven years ago, which I didn't have because he made his own notes up from the class. And so I'm getting to compare. I put the lesson together, and then I'm comparing my current self to the Chuck of seven years ago and trying to figure out, okay, have I slipped a flywheel? Am I losing it? Or am I am I just seeing different things in the book? So this has been interesting to compare uh, what I'm seeing now versus what I saw years ago. So, so that's why we're going through the first Corinthians right now. Uh, as I mentioned, this is a very practical letter. It addresses lots of problems in the church in Corinth. One of my great fears in studying books of the Bible is I want to make sure I'm not taking things out of context. All right. It's so easy to do that. You take a look, verse here, a verse there to you have some agenda that you're trying to push. And I want to take things out of context. And so I'll stop and I'll ask myself a question. All right. Paul's not writing the letter to Chuck Pike and he's not writing the the, the Church of Christ in, in, in Woburn or whatever we call ourselves. All right. He's, he's not writing the letter to me. He's writing it to a church in Corinth that he actually knows pretty well. So. I'm trying to think, okay, who wrote the letter? Who's he writing it to? Why is he writing the letter? And so I read through that, and, and is there some grand theme in the letter? So I read through all of 1 Corinthians in preparation for the introductory class, and the theme, the, the unifying theme of 1 Corinthians is there is no unifying theme at all. I couldn't find a theme in the, in this, in the book. I read through the whole thing and it, it, this, there's no unifying theme. He's just hitting problem after problem after. He's just a grab bag of problems here. And it seems like, uh, they had written to Paul. Paul's probably in Ephesus. This is probably written in the, in the, in the mid fifties. So he'd been to Corinth and he, he knows a lot of the people in the church in Corinth. He'd been there for a year and a half in his second missionary journey. And they had written to him and asked him some questions. And he says, now about this matter you asked about, I think that's in, in 1 Corinthians 7. So they, he's answering, part of it is answering questions, and part of it is just things he knows about from his relations back and forth with, with people in Corinth that he's heard about in the church. So 
He's just addressing a whole grab bag of issues. There are doctrinal issues, there are lifestyle issues, church discipline issues, issue problems with division. So it's all kinds of, of issues. And he's writing it to the whole church. And the other thing I say, okay, what, what do I know about the people in the church in Corinth? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, you know, not many of you were, were noble or not many of you were from important, important type background. So it, it indicates to me that this is a church. Most of the people are pretty regular people. They don't have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of education, but there are a few people who were otherwise. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he's talking about the problems of idolatry and the church getting getting mixed, but members of the church getting mixed up with eating food sacrificed to idols. And he makes a comment. He says, now, I think it's 1 Corinthians 12 too. He says, now, when you were Gentiles, so that indicates to me that most of the church is from a Gentile background. Now, there's some people here who are, uh, in Corinth, from, we know from Acts 18 and from a Jewish background as well. That's that's how we started off. So I'm trying to think what's what's Corinth like? What's the culture that that it's co- is coming out of? Let's let's start First Corinthians chapter one. Read the first nine verses just to dive into the text. I'm reading from New King James. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who were sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, will all who in every place call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus that you were enriched in everything in him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you uh, come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So uh, right off here, uh, Paul's the primary author. He says it's from Paul and Sosthenes. Sosthenes is introduced in Acts chapter 18. He's he's Jewish. He's a synagogue ruler. So it's from Paul and Sosthenes. However, in the whole book, it's always I, I, I. It's never we. So I think Paul Paul is giving Sosthenes a little bit of credit in the beginning. It seems like the the book, the the letter is really uh, really overwhelmingly from Paul himself. little background question about the church in Corinth. As I mentioned, it's predominantly Gentile from chapter 12. And he says, not many of you are wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, First uh, Corinthians one twenty six, And uh, he's answering specific questions. And where's Corinth? Corinth is in, it's obviously it's in Greece, it's in or ancient uh, via Achaia. So you have Macedonia in the north and the, and the peninsula of Greece is, and you have Achaia down in the south, and so you have Athens and, and Corinth down there. Uh, so I, I uh, years ago I ran across a, an article which is really good on head covering, and ironically it was by a, a guy who was a, a very well-known uh, teacher in the Churches of Christ. Churches of Christ are not known for their strong stance on head covering, but he's, he did a very good Bible scholar 
And what I appreciate about the article was, his name was Bruce Terry, and the, the article's called No Such Custom. And what he did was, he took the arguments, I, 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 for years I heard arguments, well, this is all about conforming to a custom which was, which was present in ancient Corinth. And Bruce Terry actually went back and looked at the primary sources for what was going on in Corinth. So I thought this is kind of interesting that he, he took this and logically addressed this. And I learned more about him. And actually, uh, Bruce Terry ended up years later doing his doctorate on a linguistic and cultural analysis of 1 Corinthians. And so I went back and I, I looked at his doctoral dissertation, the part about the, uh, the culture of Corinth, because I'm just curious, what was Corinth like? And so in that, and I'll, I'll put, I'll put the, it's, it's the, uh, it, it, anybody wants to, to check it out. It's, it, it's, his website is bterry.com. And I'll put, put the link in, in the notes. But in there, what I like about it is he goes back to primary sources. He does his homework and he will make statements and provide all the primary source information. So, so he did a lot of the primary source investigation about people who traveled through Corinth at the time, or were writing about it, what did they say? What was the city like? Because I'm, I wonder if I can picture in my mind what what were what were the things that they were dealing with that he would have had to address would be really helpful to me. He mentions in there uh, a man named Dio Chrysostom, no relation to John Chrysostom. Chrysostom just means golden mouth, so he was an, he was an orator, and uh, he said that uh, he's a philosopher lived in the first century, same time as Paul. And he described Corinth as a prosperous and wealthy city. So actually, I, when I was in Albania, I took a side trip to, uh, to Greece at one point in time and went down to ancient Corinth and got to, got to see the site. I was on a tour with some other Bible teachers. And uh, so you know, I, have, I have a picture in my mind of what it was like in, in ancient Corinth and as they're describing some of the things here. So... In Bruce Terry's cultural analysis, he he talks about the influences. One of the things was they're influenced by Greek philosophy and the uh, uh, tremendous veneration for the uh, for wisdom, for spiritual wisdom in Greek philosophy. And uh, also there'd be highly respected teachers that people would fasten themselves to in Greek philosophy. So you'd be following one teacher or another. Um, the views on marriage and divorce in the in ancient Roman Empire, this part of the world is, uh, believe it or not, divorce was extremely common in the Roman Empire during that time, the first century. And so the things that Paul is talking about here are definitely countercultural in what he's saying regarding marriage and permanence of marriage here. Uh, also, the influence in the ancient world of pagan idolatry and immorality was associated with that. So Corinth, the uh, on the hill, that is that is above Corinth was a famous temple dedicated to Aphrodite, Aphrodite, who was the patron goddess of the city. So they had pagan temples throughout the city, but the, the big one was the temple of Aphrodite. And what is Aphrodite famous for? Love. Okay, love. Love and more than love. Well, love as well as sex. So, so love and sex, Aphrodite was associated with this. And so there was a big pagan temple, and in some ancient accounts said there were a thousand temple prostitutes who would who would be working out of this temple area, 
in, in Corinth. Corinth is a port city. So you have sailors coming in and out of here, massive uh, 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 cultic prostitution, as well as the regular prostitutes who are in the city as well. And uh, so the city was known for not only being wealthy and a port city, but for its immorality and debauchery. And so, uh, you know, in the ancient world, in Greece, particularly adultery, fornication, and homosexual relations, particularly between men, were widely accepted. However, incest was considered to be uh, shameful. That was, that was something that was not okay. So when Paul is talking about, he says, there's a form of immorality among you that even the pagans consider to be shameful. Even the pagans don't involve this. So to give you an idea of how morally depraved Corinth was when Paul issues a comment like that, that gives me more, more of a sense of, of how scandalous what was going on was. Uh, Paul says when he's talking to the Christians in Corinth, they think about the people who were sitting in the church who were there. He says, don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. So that gives you a feeling that these are people who were coming out of all of these sins. That was part of the lifestyle of Corinth, the accepted lifestyle that the Christians had come out of, all right? Um, uh, pagan idolatry meets sacrifice to idols. I, I found this, this kind of interesting. There was a, uh, it was very common for there to be temples of Greek gods throughout the city, and people have banquets in their homes. And so people would invite you to go to a banquet at this temple or that temple for the specific God or even in the home. And uh, I'm, I'm including in the notes some of the quotations because they found uh, papyrus writings of some of these invitations to come to the feast. And uh, one of them that I found to be particularly entertaining here was, this is a, a, little, a little invitation to a banquet that was found it says, Diogenes asks you to dine at the first birthday of his daughter in the Serapian temple tomorrow, which is well spread uh, from the ninth hour. Okay, so this is uh, 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 Serapis, which was a kind of a combination god uh, coming out of uh, Egyptian-Greek background. So... If I think about this. This is like the equivalent of Chuck E. Cheese would be today. You know, you, you got you've got the party, but it's at the local temple. Well, let's see. That temple's booked, and this one over here it's a little too expensive. The room is too big, but uh, the temple of Serapis that that one's available. That's open. Let's have the birthday party in there and invite everybody. And well, they can have the wine, they can have the meat. So they give you an idea. This was part of the culture of ancient Corinth: is that they go to the temple. And they'd invite people and they'd have their birthday parties and things like that and invite their friends there. So, uh, and I have some, I'll throw some more examples of that in, in the notes for those who are, want to see with your own eyes about the, how extensive this practice was. Uh, also, 
There are issues that have to do with the role of women in the church that he's touching on here. And in ancient Greek society, as I'm sure many people are aware of, the the most famous uh, prophets in ancient Greece, in the ancient Greek pagan world, was the Oracle of Delphi. And the Oracle, the, the, the priestess or the prophetess there, sometimes there were more than one, in Delphi, in Greece, was, was of course, a woman. And um, uh, so this was, this, was a, this was not unusual at all for women to be involved in priesthood and to be involved in religious practices, uh, you know, plus, plus all the, uh, the women involved in, in the pagan idolatry uh, associated with Aphrodite. So um, now, it's important to understand, as we're reading through 1 Corinthians, the direction that Paul is giving here is generally massively countercultural. He's telling people that they need to do things that are going against the prevailing culture of Corinth. When he's talking about sexual morals, when he's talking about the roles, roles of men and women, when he's talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols, he's going against the grain to relay the foundation that the apostles had handed down in the beginning. So it's apparent that the worldly ideas from the culture have been pervading the church. They're attacking members of the church, maybe the weaker members, maybe the newer members, maybe people who came out of those backgrounds who were tempted to draw back into them. Uh, So I think actually this letter is probably a whole lot more useful to us in a practical sense than something like Romans or Colossians, because this is a church that is being attacked by a, a very ungodly worldly culture and Paul is having to point them back into the distinctively Christian culture, which is a different way of life. Um, in, in conversations with, with members uh, of the church here, um, as we've had a large influx of people over the last year or so, it's produced, I'll, I'll say, a range of feelings, okay, some people are really excited. Wow, isn't it awesome? We got all these people here. Isn't this great? Uh, we're, we're the, the group is growing and, and, uh, and our, the influence is spreading. Other people are terrified because they're thinking, what's going to happen? What about how are, the, how are the people that are coming in going to influence us? As we move from one house church to several, which is what we think is going to happen, how do we stay on track? and not get blown off course. You know, Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good habits. So with people coming in, or what? what also have the question, what do we do when people are coming in from very worldly backgrounds? What are we going to do? Do we, do we sit down and vet them? Do we ask them 50 questions and make sure that they check off all the boxes? Uh, what, what do we do? How do we, how do we handle this to make sure that we're not uh, blown off course. I I, I read a, a uh, it, was, it was a Christian pastor, a Christian writer from an evangelical background, who was speaking. I read it last week, this this past week, about a a, a study that he had read that was uh, done by George Barna. George Barna is a famous Christian, uh, I guess, pollster and, and 
an analyst of, of social changes. So I went back and found the study to read it for myself. And the, 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 the name of the study was the American Worldview Inventory of 2023. And this was release number three, how the faith of America has shifted since the start of the pandemic. So what they were doing is before the pandemic started, uh, 2020, and then this year, 2023, they did surveys and they're comparing what's changed in the spiritual landscape here in America. And here were some of the changes that had taken place. Now, these were changes not in the culture in general, which they also looked at, but specifically with people who would be considered born-again Christians, okay? And I, I, I have a hard time defining exactly what that term means, but that was the term that they used. So for people who were born-again Christians, this is just the shift between beginning of the pandemic and right now. Christians who believe human life is sacred dropped from 39% to 29%. That's a pretty massive shift in 10 years, okay, and three years. Christians who believe God is the basis for all truth dropped from 42% to 36%. Christians who are deeply committed to practicing their religious faith, now listen to this, it dropped from 60% in 2020 to 48% in 2023. Christians who attend church at least once a week drop from 39% to 33%. Christians reading the Bible at least once a week drop from 37% to 33%. So think about this. This is people who call them people who be considered born again Christians. Two-thirds of them don't read their Bible once a week. Now, I hope we're, we're meditating on the Word of God day and night here. We're called to a much higher standard than that. But what it tells me is the church was in terrible shape at the beginning of the pandemic and has had the, the decline became much more rapid afterwards. And, and the analysis, Barna is weighing in on this. And he says, he says, listen, normally, you know, people's attitude towards politics or entertainment or social issues goes up and down all the time. He said, but generally, generally people's attitude, religious values stay pretty rock solid and they change over a generation. But you don't see these kind of severe changes happening in three years. You just don't see that happening. And so what he's saying is that this is an indication of the incredibly weak foundation that churches have laid in the past. And then the influence of the pandemic has just accelerated things. Uh, and one of the things that, that he mentioned in there, he said the this exposes the predominant worldview of most Americans is what he calls syncretism. Syncretism is, it's a mixture. It's a mixture of a little bit of this and a little bit of that based on whatever makes you feel good. So it's a combination of a little Christian ideas and a little worldly ideas all blended together. And he says, these ideas that a person holds are logically inconsistent. They don't fit together. They don't make any logical sense that people can hold these two opposing views at the same time, but people don't care about that. They just believe whatever collection of ideas makes them feel good. So, and I thought about that. I thought, you know, people I've talked to out of churches that I thought were a little stronger than they, that, that, than apparently they are. And I'm seeing the influence of all kinds of worldly ideas coming into these other churches, flooding in. And whether it and whether it's the 
whether it's a, a woke agenda, whether it's uh, attitudes about questioning the biblical teaching on homosexuality or sexual standards or role of women or things like that, that people are holding views that logically make no sense at the same time. And this is, this is, this is endemic in the Christian world and it's accelerated significantly. So why is first Corinthians really important for us now? Because I think we're, we're right there. We're right. We're in a world where the, the influence of the world are flooding in on Christians and the Christians are not doing very well. And the churches are not doing very well with this. And Paul is not saying to them, Corinth is a bad place. You need to pick up and move someplace that's where they don't have the, all the, the temple prostitutes and things like that. And, and they don't have, you know, just, just go someplace where nobody's, you're not going to have all these bad influences. He's saying, no, you need to get back to the apostolic teachings. You get, you need to get back to the teachings of Jesus. You need to clean up the church and the church needs to be a distinctive culture within the city of Corinth right there. So, uh, now Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth in Matthew 5, 13, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. By men. So this is the picture is that the church is to have its own distinctive Christian culture wherever we are in the world. And we're not to lose our saltiness, the distinctiveness that we hold. Uh, and that, I, I really, I really feel like the, the church, the church here is that. I feel like it's it's like an oasis of sanity in the middle of a world that is going off the deep end. And we need to make sure that we're standing on the apostolic foundation, the one that was a faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints and, and not bringing in worldly, uh, ideas that go against, against the word of God. So, uh, you know, Paul says, preach the word in season and out of season. And it's out of season here right now. So, uh, now, it's easy to take a look at the church in Corinth and all the problems that they had and look down on them. Think, wow, what a what a loser church. What a terrible church. I can't believe that all these things would be going on in the church in Corinth. Um, but it, to me, if I take a look at where they were and the influences that they had to fight against, I can, I can better appreciate that. Paul doesn't excuse them. He calls them to repent and to change. And his focus was on fixing the problems. Now, Paul invested his life in the church in Corinth. He was there for a year and a half in a second missionary journey, corrupt city. And why did he do that? Why did he go to a place like this? And he went to other major cities like Ephesus, Athens, Antioch, Jerusalem, Rome. Um, he did it to spread the gospel to the whole world. And they start with the cities of influence and go out and, and, and influence the other areas. And when we look at the degradation and moral collapse that's all around us, perhaps we can take some encouragement from that. You know, I, I mentioned the last couple of weeks, actually, it was this, this very weekend in Boston was SatanCon 2023. I believe it was yesterday. And um, 
This is billed as the largest satanic gathering in world history. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm thinking, well, I can take some comfort from being people living in a very wicked place like Corinth that the kingdom of God uh, needs to shine brightly. The light shines brightest in the darkest places. And if we want to evangelize New England, what better place is there to start than right here in Boston, in, in the uh, in the Boston area? And this is where the uh, you know birthplace place of the American Revolution as well. So we can a lot of a lot of things that that uh, can go out from here to other places too. Uh, I want to step back and look at at Paul's familiarity with the church in Corinth. We discussed this. We're going through a book of Acts uh, not too long ago. Let's turn to Acts chapter eighteen. Uh, this helps to set the stage for me, for Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth, to see uh, the beginnings of that in the book of Acts. In the book, in Acts chapter 17, Paul goes from the north to the south. He goes from Thessalonica to Berea, and then he goes to Athens by himself, and then he goes from Athens to Corinth, which is not that far away in the south. <laughs> and uh, Acts chapter 18 and verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit, testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. I am with you. No one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Then verse uh, 12, when Gallio was proconsul in Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to law. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words or names with your own laws, look to yourselves. I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So this is Paul says, 1 Corinthians says, Paul and Sosthenes. Now now we know who Sosthenes is. He was the ruler of the synagogue, and he got beat up when they were going after Paul. He was in, he was in the unfortunate position of getting beaten up for the, the disturbance here. And also we, we see that Paul was spent a year and a half there, the other thing we learn is Gallio, while Gallio was proconsul in Achaia, so uh, we know from historical records that Gallio was proconsul in Achaia, 50-51 AD. So this dates uh, when Paul was first in Corinth. So he's writing a few years later in the mid-50s. He's writing a letter to a church he had just been to a few years earlier. 
and he knew a lot of people there. Um, so <clears throat> then uh, in, uh, later in Acts chapter 18, it talks about Apollos, who, um, who was encountered first. Uh, let's, let's pick it up, verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures, Jesus is the Christ. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. So, so Apollos goes into Corinth. He's a powerful preacher. He's mighty in the scriptures. So say this upward call to me that he he knew the scriptures really well, and he could use them to prove that Jesus was the Christ. This is, is it, uh, an upward call to knowing knowing the Old Testament really well to be able to prove the faith to people who don't believe. So we see Apollos, who's who's going to be mentioned here in First uh, Corinthians chapter one as well. Uh, Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's continuing verse 10. So here we've been introduced to Paul's year and a half in Corinth and to Sosthenes and to Apollos. Verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, there be no divisions among you, and that you be perfectly joined together with the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, who is Peter, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So, 1 Corinthians is addressing all kinds of problems in the church. Sexual morality, incest, Lord's Supper problems, eating meat involved to uh, sacrifice idols, uh, False teaching on core issues like the resurrection of the dead, lawsuits, questions about marriage, questions about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, role of women, women speaking, head cover, all these different issues. What's the first thing that Paul goes after here? Division in the church. And he actually, this is the, this is the, the main theme of the first three or four chapters of First Corinthians. So with all these, with all these problems that would seem to many of us, to be bigger problems. I mean, incest in the church, that's that's pretty incredible. Why would Paul stop and hit this one first and hit it so hard? Why would he do that? Um, so think about that. Of all, the, of all the issues, you're going to rank the issues, what would you hit first? Most of us wouldn't have hit that one first, so why did Paul do that? I think 
I think he had the same the same appreciation that Jesus did. Let's turn to John chapter 17. He saw how dangerous this was. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying for the apostles, and then he prays for us. This is, the la- this is right after the Last Supper, before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane for the apostles. John chapter 17, let's start reading in verse 15. <laughs> so Jesus is praying. He says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. This is referring to the apostles. But that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by by the truth, your truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. And, And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also... For those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you've given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known you, have known that you sent me. I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. So what is Jesus praying for? He's praying for he's praying for the apostles, and then he's praying for us. Praise that the Lord will protect the apostles from Satan when he's sending them out to the world. Then he prays for us. He prays for those who would believe through the message of the apostles, which includes us. And he prays that we would be one as he and the Father are one. He says that the unity among believers would be a sign to the entire world that Jesus was sent by the Father. And Jesus also prayed that the love of the Father would be in us and that he himself would be in us. Uh, So why did Paul hit the problem of disunity in the beginning. Why did Jesus, why was this the one thing that Jesus prayed for for us? He could have prayed, Father, I pray that they will keep their doctrine perfectly straight and orthodox. He could have prayed, Lord, I pray that that all the women are going to have head coverings, all right? They're all going to dress modestly. I'm concerned about that in the future. He could have prayed, I pray that they'll not mess up their theology on baptism. Think of all the things Jesus could have prayed for. The one thing he prays for is the unity among believers that they may be one as he and the Father are one. Jesus was aware of Satan's tactics. He prays that the apostles will be protected from Satan. Okay, what did he think Satan was going to do? 
after he died and was resurrected. Satan's going to cause disunity in the church. If this is the sign to the world that we are from God, the unity of Christians, what is Satan going to do to completely discredit Jesus and his mission? He's going to cause disunity among Christians. That's what he's going to do. Has Satan been successful in doing that? What do you think? Where are we today? Uh, this whole issue of, of, of unity and disunity among Christians, Paul also talks about that in Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read, I'm going to read uh, in, in the New King James, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbirth of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, and heresies. Okay, and then he continues further, he continues with the list, and he says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay. Uh, some other translations. Galatians 5.20 from the ESV says, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions. American Standard Version, factions, divisions, and parties. We're not talking about birthday parties here. We're talking about, about groups breaking off into little, little uh, subsets within the church. Uh, this sin of creating division and faction and parties within the church is included on the same list with adultery, fornication, sorcery, idolatry. And he says, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. How serious in Paul's mind is the sin of creating division in the body of Christ. It's pretty serious. Now, the hardest part of this challenge is Jesus prayed that all of the future believers would be one, as he and the Father are one. Now, it'd be one thing if he just said, people in your local church, that'd be hard enough to, to stay unified right there, but I can imagine that. But to say he's praying that all of the believers would be one as he and the Father are one, that is, that is so challenging that it's hard to even imagine that happening considering where we are today. Whenever I've heard sermons talking about unity, they'll talk about unity between husband and wife, or they'll talk about unity within the congregation, or maybe sometimes unity within a denomination of churches. But who talks about Unity among all believers and is serious about it. This is hard for to even imagine. So hard that most people just give up and don't even bother trying. In my opinion, this is maybe the hardest command of Jesus, the hardest desire of Jesus to follow. I mean, to me, head covering, modest dress, permanence of marriage, you know, non-resistance, all those challenges, pale in comparison. This is like, this is, this is the Mount Everest of the kingdom challenges. It's so hard that practically no one 
even attempts to go there. I think there's another reason why unity is important too. It may tie in with this, in my opinion. First uh, Corinthians 12, Paul says that the church is a body made up of many parts. If one part is cut off, the whole body suffers. I remember years ago, David Brousseau talking about the historic faith. And he said, you know, pretty much every element of the historic faith is held by some group that's out there. Maybe it's the Catholics, maybe it's the Orthodox, maybe it's the Protestants, the Anabaptists, the Church of Christ. All of the things that, the, that were handed down by the apostles, pretty much all of them are believed by somebody. But the challenge is none of these groups talk to each other. They don't learn from each other, okay? Because of their jealousies and this divisive spirit, people don't work together to build bridges and learn from one another. Uh, now, many people have ideas about how you can come up with Christian unity, and, and here, here are my top four failed ideas for how to create Christian unity. Failed approach number one is the Roman Empire approach. Roman Empire approach, all right? What's the, how's the Roman Empire? It's one guy, Caesar, who's in Rome, and everybody rolls up to him, all right? So we know, I, I grew up Roman Catholic, and that's, uh, I'm familiar with that. See? So the Catholic's answer is, well, it's easy to be unified. All you have to do is, 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 is uh, sign, sign, uh, cast your, turn yourselves in and just become part of the Roman Catholic Church. Well, of course, the Orthodox will have a little different answer to that, about, about what that unity is going to look like, or the Coptic churches, or the other, the other older churches. But that's one attitude. You know, we got a few problems with that. First thing is, now I'm reading the, 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 the New Testament, and I don't see that in there. This, this is a huge stretch to, 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 to the idea that the whole, the, the way to unity is going to be to have one guy who runs the church who's going to be handing that down perpetually after that. I was reading, in preparation for this, this series, I was reading a work called First Clement, who is, was written by Clement, or it's also known as the, the letter from the church in Rome to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth, shortly after this time, had tremendous problems of division in the church, that some of the, the young bucks in the church were rising up against the duly appointed elders of the church, and it was creating a mess. And so Clement was writing as a brother who was concerned about this. But it wasn't, you know, I'm going to lay down the law here as the, as the head of the church uh, in Rome. It was, it was more, of a, more of a sense of a, a brotherly concern that was expressed. So I don't see this in the, in the early church and the people who knew the apostles that they carried this idea forward about the one guy. And then the other thing is, um, you know, the, uh, what do you do with what it says in Jude? Uh, verse 3, contend for the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. Is the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope uh, contending for the faith that the apostles handed down the faith once for all trust the saints? Unfortunately, in a lot of in a lot of areas they've drifted. So what do we do? What do we do with that? Failed approach number two is watered down Christianity. Let's just have a big tent and anything that's controversial, we'll just call it an opinion matter. Okay, even though the, the Apostle Paul laid out exactly what you need to do. So let's say, uh, you know, homosexuality in the church, oh, that's an opinion matter. Uh, role of women in the church, that's an opinion matter. Anything, you just fuzz out on any of the hard controversial teachings of Jesus. 
Uh, did the resurrection actually happen as the Bible, the, the inspired word of God? And so what you end up with is basically the Unitarian Universalist Church. Sorry to pick on anybody, but this is a you know church where you can believe anything and, and that, that, that it's so watered down that the salt has completely uh, lost its saltiness. The distinctive Christian teachings are gone, and the church is just, just, just conformed to the world. Failed approach number three. This is my favorite. This is the ostrich model. All right. What do ostriches do when they're stressed? When they're stressed, let's say there's some predator that's chasing them, and uh, they can't run. They say they can't run away from the predator. What do they do? They hide in the hole. That's right. They stick their head in the hole in the ground because they figure if they can't see the problem, it must not exist. All right. So they at least maybe they'll die from 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 the predator, but at least they won't be stressed out when they're when they're as they're done. So you just stick your head in the, you stick your head in a hole in the sand and pretend that everything's okay. So the ostrich model, and I, I've been in churches that practice this. The the what you the ostrich model is you pretend that there are no other churches out there. Okay, you are the one and only true church, and you've got some reason for for believing that. You know, maybe maybe. It, Maybe it's a line from the apostles, or maybe you've got these seven doctrinal points that no other church has, or maybe you've made some of them up yourselves, but you come up with some distinctive formula by which you can judge all the other churches out there and conclude, wow, I can't believe it. We're the only church that exists. We're the one true church. And that by doing that, Unity becomes really simple. All you have to do is make sure everyone in your denomination stays in line. That's it. So that's 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 the ostrich approach. Is you basically you assume that the problem is a way that there's no one else you need to be you need to be unified with. Uh, so I've been there and and seen the, the wreckage that 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 causes. Uh, fail failure to approach number four is just just trust the local leaders. Whatever they say, just do it. Conform to whoever the local leaders are and whatever rules they come up with. If they're biblical, if they're not biblical, just toe the line, conform, and, and do what you're told in a local church. And uh, I've seen this in, in, in certain religious circles where you do have the appearance of unity there. There's an outward appearance of unity within the local congregation. But when you go across the street to another congregation, uh, they have a completely different set of leaders. They have a different set of rules, and there's no unity. The unity is impossible because the more of these things you add in, the harder it is to have true biblical unity. What happens, the fruit of that is people really don't need to study their Bibles. You just do what you're told, okay? So biblical convictions become weaker and weaker over time. And there are more and more barriers that, that are raised up, and unity becomes practically impossible. That one group has a different set of rules than another, and there's no way to reconcile the two. So, all right, so you give me four, uh, four failed ways to achieve unity. Okay, so, so what, how, do you, how, do you have, how do you have unity? What, what do you do to be unified? Well, I think about it all the time, and I wish I could give you a nice, simple answer. I can't. Satan has been extremely effective in fracturing the church. And if anything, things seem to be getting worse over time with more groups and denominations popping up. A few thoughts I'll throw out there. 
In everything we do as a church, we need to consider, is this going to tend to produce more unity or more division in the worldwide body of Christ? First group of, first group of Christians, first church I want to be unified with is the original church, okay? The faith once and for all hand down to the saints. I'll start, let's start by being unified with those guys, all right? Let's start there, and then let's pull everybody else closer to the center with every opportunity that we have. Uh, unity is hard work, and it's going to require much help from the Holy Spirit and wisdom and prayer. Uh, you know, people have asked, as, as, we, as we split up into house churches, um, what are we going to call ourselves? Okay? Shouldn't we have, for a website, shouldn't we have a brand name? I mean, every company has a brand name, so you can be identified, you can identify with this. And really, isn't this, isn't this what Paul is saying we shouldn't do? You shouldn't be identifying with one person or one faction in the body of Christ. Um, uh, you know, anytime we add to the scriptures or impose a rule, we're creating division between ourselves and the historic church and the rest of the body of Christ. Um, and any attempt to create a brand, a brand does the same thing. Uh, I'm reminded one of the one of the things I really appreciate early restoration movement. There was a genuine desire in the early restoration movement to go after Christian unity. One of the themes, one of the slogans was, we are Christians only, not the only Christians. And it's just like Animal Farm over time, it kind of, kind of got uh, flipped around there. So, uh, uh, But one of the things I, I really appreciate about this, I, I want to, sh to share with this, is that the, uh, lots, of, lots of church groups implode. All right, happens all the time. Lots of them implode. Usually churches fall apart when things are going bad, okay? Now, in, in Barton Stone's case, the church dissolved when things were going great. What happened was, this is, this is a group, I think it was in, in Kentucky, Tennessee, that area. Uh, it was a group of a dozen churches or so that were growing, that were thriving. And they're looking at the New Testament and they're saying, you know, we're turning into a denomination here. And, and we don't want to do that. What we want to do is we want to dissolve ourselves and just be part of the body of Christ. I thought, what a wonderful spirit. They don't want to make the name for themselves. They don't want to be like the Tower of Babel. Look at us. Because they just, we want to be Christians. We want to dissolve ourselves. We're going to, and, and they wrote this, this kind of a tongue-in-cheek, humorous document called The Last Will and Testament of the Springfield Presbytery. So they're, they're making, it's like the person dies, you know, David, David writes wills. I said, they wrote a, the last will and testament of their denomination, basically. They said, we will that, 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 that the people who find their identity in this group or this name will go back to the scriptures and find their identity in Jesus Christ. And we want to dissolve ourselves and just become part of the body of Christ. So this was... Uh, 15 congregations in Kentucky and Ohio. And uh, so I encourage you to, to read that. I may throw that in the notes. And uh, <clears throat> a, a few years later, uh, the statement that they issued <clears throat> that I want to close with, this is from Observations on Church Governments. Government. It says, but seeing Christians are one, and have fellowship with the Father and the Son by one Spirit. It is most unreasonable thing in this world for them to be separated in their external communion. 
This separation has been the work of the devil and is by this his means that has continued in the world. Let Christians look back to the history of the primitive church as recorded in the New Testament. Let them take a view of the plain and native simplicity which shines out there. This beautiful equality that reigned among the apostolic churches and let them pant to breathe that native air. They were all brothers and sisters, met together with one accord, united in one mind and one judgment. They ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. They went from house to house, from one love feast to another, were strictly forbidden to call themselves by the name of Paul or Apollos, etc., and such as did were pronounced carnal, sensual, and not having the Spirit. View the churches scattered abroad, planted and visited by the apostles and others. They had all access to each other and communion together. And that one Spirit of God which lives in every Christian has made no provision for acting otherwise till the end of time. Amen. Amen.